Hey, everybody, and welcome to the Health Tech Pigeon podcast, bringing you the top health tech news stories and analysis every single week. I'm James, and back with me today, I have my co-hosts, Jessica and Henry, and we have our guest, Nick from Kavanagh Health. So, Nick, do you want to kick off by saying hi? Tell us who you are and where you come from. Hi, guys. I am Nick Ross from Kavanagh Health. We are a specialist life science executive search firm. So we partner with businesses, UK, US, Europe, that are looking to change the, the world in health for people. Early stage organisations, people right at the forefront of technology, people with patients at the very heart and centre of what they do. Excellent. And you're a science guy, is that right? I take an attempt. <laughs> probably depends on the crowd <laughs> what what is a science guy uh what is a science guy i don't know that you're interested in it that you've done it that you've studied it that's kind of all of the above isn't it nick I th- yeah I th- <laughs> you've done it <laughs> you, you, yeah. you've done science yeah i've done science you know i wouldn't i wouldn't rec- i wouldn't recruit in any other space for sure the industry is fascinating the clients are fascinating and the technology is awesome so yeah i'm a science guy he's a science guy there we go you've rebranded excellent Henry, Jess, how's it going? How, how have your weeks been? Uh, my week's been good. It's been uh, a week of two halves. So always busy with work. I say that every week. I also got to go to Legoland with my godson, which was a particular highlight. But let me tell you, chasing a five-year-old around soft play is quite a lot harder than uh, health <laughs> tech communications, I think. <laughs> yeah, busy, hot, enjoyable. That would be my three-word summary this week. You're not chucking us meeting in person, Henry. As a, as a highlight for your week. Slide it. I was going to slide Ow. it in later. First, I was going to go when we got to the biotech story. First time we meet in person and it's not in the highlight list. Let's go back. Let's go back. <laughs> I mean, obviously my biggest highlight was meeting Nick in person this week. I'd say not just for this, <laughs> not just for this week, but actually for the entire year, and if not my life. Uh, but no, it was genuinely lovely to meet. It's always really nice to meet clients face to face and to meet the Kavanaugh team and you know everyone and sit in the beautifully air-conditioned office yeah I mean that's I mean, where this is going where I didn't it? deliberately book that meeting yeah for a 34 degree day but it was great it was really nice and it's a it's a lovely space you've got so yeah that was great cheers I'm not sure you're gonna get invited back but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh excellent well that you're fitting well here Nick uh on to the first story of today Right, Patchwork Health, big, big name in the health tech space, Patchwork Health. They've raised £20 million for flexible NHS worker platform, tackling the workforce crisis, uh, sorting out, I was going to say the locum problem in the NHS, that's immediately quite a barbed way of phrasing it. But Henry, tell us about this one. Yeah, I mean, I think I've put in pigeon. This is a a really good example of, if you take a big problem you create a great solution for it and you do it with really good people even in this market raising's not going to be well, it's going to be difficult still but it's it's going to be a lot easier um it's a really really great bit of tech uh legend legend has it are we going to go with that yeah legend <laughs> has it that at some point in in my career i've had to pitch against patchwork while it's going for nhs contracts um and it it's always, if you're on the other side, it's always disheartening to see that they're also bidding for something because it is such a great platform. Um, on the flip side of that, Anas and Jing are such lovely human beings that you can't help but be, you know, you can't help but be behind them to back them. So, yeah, it'd be really great to see what they do with this 20 million. It's a great Series B. It is a brilliant platform. 
and yeah, I just wish them all the best. It's such a well, James, you're a doctor. Were most of your rosters done on Excel. I mean, my, my, I think so. And my experience of it is just getting that rotor through in the sort of PDF version of the spreadsheet and just seeing all the gaps and seeing where you're going to get asked, can you fill in at this shift and can you do it for this rate? And it's just that feeling of, of there must there must be a better way. And yeah, you're right. I mean, I've, yeah, I knew Alas back in the day before he had the idea and I hope he's listening to say hi. But yeah, looking forward to getting him on the, uh, on the Health Tech podcast actually and going deep on, on what these guys are doing. But as you say, it's, um, it's, it's cool. I'm looking forward to them solving, continuing to solve this problem. And to give you an anecdote, because I love an anecdote, one of the trusts I once went to, their roster was printed out. So went to Excel, it was printed out, stuck on a notice board. Any changes, they wouldn't just change it on there. They would then, they'd then take the written changes, put it back into the computer and then print it out again. You couldn't access this from anywhere else. So if you wanted to know what you were rostered on for, for the next six weeks, you'd have to go into the trust and look at this piece of paper that by the time you got home might have been reprinted twice. And so it was just utterly irrelevant. It's like, this is chaos. Like, <laughs> I've worked in cafes that have better rostering systems than that. But anyway, big problem. Hopefully they can fix it. Question on the on the purpose of the fundraise, because I think you guys are all talking about the the systems post-joining the NHS. Mm. And it's a big piece here on recruitment for it. And is this just another recruitment tool? And I, I don't recruit into the NHS, so I couldn't tell you what it's like, but I hear it's not pretty. And is this the solution to recruitment or is this a, is this a timesheets system solution and a software piece that's going to be really useful for people that are actually in the NHS on the day-to-day? It's a really good question. So it's it's sort of both. It's not a recruitment tool per se, but my understanding, and Patrick may well have changed in the last four years or so, but I think I've kept a, a fairly close eye on them, um, is that you can never fill you can never fill your roster with just the people who are substantive staff in the trust like FTE stuff you're never going to do it so they have to be locums and previously those locums there'll be an entire team in the trust who would just ring up the locums and try and pull people in to fill those gaps um, and if they're signed up to patchwork they can just find those shifts automatically you can push them out to a big kind of pool so those people remain locums they're not being recruited into the trust it's not a recruitment tool per se but it's a way of filling in the inevitable gaps when you've run out of substantive staff and when you've you know there are so many rules about rostering and you can't do x amount of nights in a row you can't do a morning after a night that get broken all the time um but ideally using something like patchwork you can pull people in who don't break those rules so that you're actually you have compliant rostering for the entire time on to story number two So on to story number two, how can health tech bridge the knowledge gap around women's hormones? Is there a knowledge gap? Apparently there is. So a study by Mira or Myra, however that's pronounced, states that 50% of women don't understand their hormones. Can health tech change this is the question. Um, it's a pretty outrageous statistic and it and feels like quite a large sweeping statement that 50% of women don't understand their hormones. I did do bit of digging into this it was i think a couple of thousand people that they asked so not a, not a hugely representative sample and i don't know how they got that sample and you know the when you look at these you always got to question the method i suppose however clearly they've asked a, a few couple of thousand people around half of them to, to some degree didn't understand their hormones and again that needs probably defining but jess tell us about this one does that stat uh, surprise you does it offend you given uh, how they've presented it talking about this one well, I'm going to come right out of the blocks here and say that 
this stat is surprising, but not because not the way that you think it's going to be. Because I can categorically say, knowing myself and knowing the women in my life, uh, that stat is going to be way higher. I don't. That's not offensive. It's th- it's the truth, and the truth of that is actually a lot more stark. So much more stark. You don't get really taught about hormones ever at any point in your life. You have mm. maybe like a six week block of science lessons that are for men and for women, girls and boys. Um, and you learn about the different phases of the um, menstrual cycle, but you're not taught what that actually means for you and your body. That's not part of, um, you know, sexual health classes and all of that kind of thing. You don't get taught about it. And then you go to the doctor with maybe acne or bad periods when you're 14, 15, 16, you're going through puberty, your hormones are all over the place and you're put on the pill. And then you stay on the pill for 10 years until you're like, actually, I have no clue what this is doing to my body. I don't know how my own hormones work. I don't know what I should be feeling when. And you don't know what's the pill, what's your body. You don't know, even around, you know, ovulation and fertility. It's not until I've got later in my life that I've started to understand that, talking to friends who are actually in a position where they're trying for families and that kind of thing. And that that information is passed between women. That isn't information that we're taught. So I think quite frankly, that statistic isn't representative because the the problem is so much worse. I, I'm really passionate about this. And what I will say is that I think week on week, I, there's some kind of femtech story or women's health story. And I come on here waxing lyrical about understanding your hormones, understanding your body and the role that health tech plays. What I'm so excited to see is that there is an article in Marie Claire, not just talking about women's health, because they do talk about those kinds of topics, but talking about the role of health tech in supporting women understand their bodies and their health. Um, and I think, you know, the knowledge gap in from a clinical perspective is well known for women, but actually, and I think to a certain extent talked about a bit for women understanding their own bodies, but actually that knowledge gap in women themselves is so important because actually knowledge is power and it allows you to advocate for yourself where perhaps a clinician may not have full understanding or even where they do, but it opens up opportunities and choice. And another thing they talk about is about therefore equity of access to care and where you're able to advocate for yourself more because you understand your body, because let's not forget you are an expert in your own health and your own body. You, you are the only person experiencing that. No one can challenge that. So therefore, you can hopefully, in in some circumstances or most circumstances, be able to have an informed discussion with your clinician. And also shout out to Claudia for her brilliant commentary in this article. And also, as always, to flow, other period tracking apps are available, but to me, a total lifesaver and I swear blind. So Obviously, I'm joined here by three men with different experiences. But when you opened up there, James, you're, you sounded a bit sceptical, I think, about this article. And it sounded like you thought perhaps that the article itself was perhaps um, patronising to women. And I like, what do you think about that? As, as someone, A, who is in a relationship with a woman who goes through those experiences, you know, everyone on this call, but also your understanding of women's hormones what does that look like because do you know how that affects you know the people that you're working with for instance and the people that you're living with because it's not you can't separate it it has such an impact and I think it's not just women who need to be aware it's men yeah and I think that's a really good point I think you're right 
when I saw that as a tagline, 50% of women don't understand their hormones, my thought immediately there went to, yes, is that patronizing? Are you, you, you're telling a, a huge, a, a huge volume of the population there. You're talking to millions of people there saying that the chances are you don't really understand something that's going on about you. And actually, in your explanation of it, yes, I can totally see that because I sat in those same lessons at school with that very academic delivery of what a menstrual cycle is. And frankly, actually at medical school, there's been something recently actually in the news about this at medical schools that medical students aren't taught well enough and that actually people are having to do more specific training around women's health problems because males are getting to that point by just deferring to females on a lot of that because they are more likely to understand it. But interestingly, are they? They might go through it, but they're party to the same information. And actually that learning clearly has been passed on to what I, individuals, but also as, as I've just learned from you now, women obviously sharing that information with each other. So yeah, I, I think educational all round for me there. And in terms of how that affects me as as someone in a relationship with a woman and living with one and knowing them and and as friends and colleagues etc then i think you said it right that knowledge is power and i think the more that people don't feel that this is their body just doing something to them and actually they can have that knowledge to then have greater understanding and then to receive somewhat of greater control either by, by perceived control or actual control based on what you're actually doing with with treatment and prophylaxis and all the rest of it i think that is something that i am pleased to be in a position that i can help democratize because that is information that's knowledge that's things like putting this type of thing in pigeon that's things like having this conversation and i think yeah interesting for all of those reasons on my side, I've got well, a partner, but two uh, two kids, both daughters. And I, I did an interview recently with uh, Shardina Havandi, who's the CEO of a company called Tune. And they are developing personalized contraceptives for women. And a lot of the, the fa- fundamentals of that sits behind hormones in terms of what the, the tests that they're running in, in order to make these personalized. And the reality of doing some research off the back of it was, I think, 50% of women have side negative side effects from the contraceptive that they're taking contraceptive that largely in the 70s was great 2020 is a bit useless and is really not doing having the impact it should have and i do worry we 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 run a with data and information and i think there's there's a bit of a balance here between like what are you are people who are not trained ever going to get to the point that they're a depth of understanding their hormones is going to be really impactful and valuable to them. And I think about the way people talk about diets at the moment and every layman has a, has an opinion and a thought on what supplements you should have and how you should build your nutrition deck. And that's not to take away from the fact that I think there's a massive upscale in training that needs to come through within the health perception, uh, health space in this space in particular, but does giving all the people the data and all the information, is that actually useful for one? Uh, and the other piece I had just on the Mary, Mary Claire piece specifically is I thought the title was fair. And I think it's, I definitely agree. It's more than 50% of people don't understand their hormones. I, I think 90% upwards don't, um, male and female. Uh, 
there was one piece in there that I think devalued the credibility of the science. There was just the one third of women hadn't heard about infertility. And that for me was like, I had my head scratching that a thousand people, 333 of them had never heard of infertility. Didn't understand what that word meant as a baseline topic. And that one, that one sort of took a little knock to it. But otherwise, this is Mm. knowledge is power. Just get the right knowledge. Mm. And I think, I think that is actually fair enough what you say about infertility. And I think to James's earlier point, it would be good to understand you know, the cohort of people that they spoke to and understand maybe some of the reasons for that. But to go back to your point about data, and I actually talk about this quite a lot on here about every time when, you know, there are diagnostic tests and that kind of thing that perhaps have raised money or, you know, they're doing something great. It's, it's all and good, but what happens with that information? However, I do think that with particularly women's hormones, that is slightly different because I know that having and and I'm N equals one, right? But I know that having had that information, it's had a material impact on my life because I'm able to understand what it, where my hormones are impacting me and actually where it's just life um, and what and how to change my life on a day-to-day basis based on what I'm experiencing at that hormonal level. What I would say is actually there is a flip side to that. And I think, again, talking from not quite N equals one, but maybe N equals 50, that actually when you do come to start thinking about a family, that can be a time where having an in-depth understanding of your cycle and that information can make things more difficult. Because I think, again, as women, you put a lot of pressure on yourself in all walks of life, but particularly where you're having a family and trying to conceive and where you're not conceiving straight off the bat where you've decided to have a family is very stressful, especially when you think you're doing all the right things, where you're trying at the right times of the month on those three days that, you know, your your tracker or your ovulation sticks are telling you that you're fertile and you're still not getting pregnant. I think that we know that stress has an impact on things like trying to conceive, but also just your hormonal fluctuations. So I think to your point, there is a flip side to an extent where actually sometimes that data can cause stress that has an adverse effect. And I, 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 as much as I'm someone who has benefited from these kinds of technologies, I also am someone who has been impacted negatively from them for those exact reasons. And I think, you know, there's a, there's always that toss up. And I think knowing, knowing when it becomes a problem is important, but also knowing the times in your life where it's useful and not useful. I think maybe there has to be some more support around that perhaps, or more conversation. Thank you for your honesty and for sharing guys. Uh, I'm going to move us on. Story number three today. This is a big one, I think. A really, really interesting one that I think we are going to have a bit of a chat about here. Uh, we talk about Babylon a lot on this and, and Babylon, well, here's the story. Two Midlands NHS trusts end partnerships with Babylon or indeed vice versa. Those partnerships with Babylon and those trusts have come to an end either way. And I think there's interesting narrative here around a company that has had, as we talked about here before, you know, increasing scrutiny on profits and sustainability as a company uh, that have made a business decision. And my question is, what does this mean for business models where it 
digital health companies, health tech companies, and the NHS, where there's one here that's just potentially taking a look at this and gone, it's not viable. What does that signal to startups, to entrepreneurs that might think they can build a business with the NHS and help the NHS and make impact with the NHS? Henry, you've been reading about this. Um, TechCrunch have reported it. Loads of other people have reported it and gone into it. Talk to me about this one. Yeah, it feels like every other week we are talking about Babylon at the moment, but um, that's fine. As you said rightly, James, uh, those partnerships have ended one, I think, by the trust and one by Babylon. What it really raises is what that means for NHS-centric health tech mm. business models. Like, Are they a viable thing? What does it, what does it say to entrepreneurs, to startups who are thinking, I'm going to spin out a piece of tech from the NHS or I'm going to... You know, if they're clinical, or I'm going to sell technology into the NHS if they're non-clinical, perhaps. What does it mean for them to look at that and be like, well, if Babylon, who are a behemoth of a, of a, of a health tech company, uh, can't make that a viable business model, can I? Like, I don't know what it signals to those people. I don't know if you guys have any thoughts. Well, Shafi Ahmed put a really interesting post out on this. Yeah, Shafi put a really interesting LinkedIn post out on this where... He actually said that from his experience, well, he reported the story. He basically put the link out to the story, but but just said that essentially he's got experience of this and has found these things difficult with, I think he referenced the older contracts and PFI and all that kind of stuff. And he just said it's very difficult to make this business model work. And I think it's that. I think it's when you've got big thought leaders like Shafi looking at it and say and and you know appraising it credibly with experience and looking at it going yeah, I get it. It's hard. I think it's that. And I think we can't jump to conclusions perhaps beyond that because there are going to be examples of it working. There are going to be examples of it not. There are going to be examples of it working for now. There's going to be examples of it not. And so I think it's difficult to draw any kind of grand conclusions from it, but you're right, Henry, it, it's happened. It's, it's there. People like Shafi are coming out very, very credibly saying, I also don't think it's going to work. So I think it's food for thought, if, if, if nothing else. The quote and the statement from the University Hospital Birmingham was that they served notice on the contract with Babylon Health, which is it actually the price point then that's the issue? Because I'm presuming Babylon are signed into some sort of fixed price and why would the mm. the University Hospital Birmingham is happy mm. with what they're receiving at the low cost they've got it at? Why would they serve notice on that contract? So the the big thing is that one 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 are building what Babylon are doing. So it's a patient, it's a symptoms checker, right? And one 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 are due to be kind of providing that in the long term plan. It's not in the long term plan. One of one of the recent plans. Mm. There've been a lot of plans, but yeah, there's a long term commitment to embed that into one one one. And so I suppose, and I can't speak for. Um, University Hospitals Birmingham and Royal Wolverhampton because well, I can't be answered <laughs> for the start. Like, yeah, I, I can't say why they've done it, but I'd imagine they're like, well, we're going to get this anyway. And mm. therefore, is there any point in us continuing? Yeah, it sounds like because it's specifically for A&E services that it was, be, that it was being used for for UHB. I think that they, the 111 service, and my understanding was it's been rolled out already or being tested or something that was going to start overtaking it. So I think to Henry's point, it's it probably is that that they already have something that is fit for purpose, that is already probably DTAC compliant and has all of the you know regulatory ticks that it needs, um, and already fits within the system that they have. So I guess at a time where budgets are stretched, it 
I guess it, it you know it makes sense and those are difficult business decisions to have to make both on the NHS side and the the health tech company side too it's interesting isn't it because there's people coming into that space because 111 is not working very well at the moment as a triaging tool so yeah there's it's I think it's really interesting to see what Babylon's long-term UK business model is obviously you know they started with a huge bang at Hammersmith and Fulham CCG that was it feels like forever ago, but it was, you know, that was a very transformative thing that they did there. Um, and, you know, you can talk about whether how they did it was right or wrong. And that's sort of by the by. But it was probably the kick up the arse that health tech needed a little bit. Like it was the first, they were the first company to get out there. And Ali was, you know, Ali's very vocal and he's very good at doing those events where he goes out and says, talks about the grand vision. I actually think that the NHS being the sort of sleep, not sleepy, that's the wrong word. It's its never had that rocket up its arse. Frankly, I can just keep talking about the <laughs> NHS's arse here. Uh, I'm sorry, but <laughs> the collective arse of the NHS. But it does, it needs pe- technology in order for it to work and for systems and organisations that are very uh, traditional, shall we say, in how they adopt stuff. It needs people to like Ali and organizations like Babylon to come along and force that change. So it will be interesting to see what they do with the NHS. I hope they don't leave the NHS as it were. I hope they don't kind of pull out completely of working in the UK to focus on their other country, the other countries they work in. But based on this, my wild projectionometer says, uh, wild conclusionometer, sorry, uh, says that maybe they will. Right. So apologies to the listeners that I now have to mark this explicit uh, as I as I produce this. Is arse a swear word? The more you say it doesn't make it any less a swear word. Let's <laughs> just put it that way. Uh, so apologies for that violent imagery that Henry's used there to describe uh, the NHS's anatomy. At least you didn't finish it with putting uh, the willies up them. So <laughs> that's for, that's for health pigeon after hours. Yeah, for the listeners' benefit, that was one that we actually had to cut out of a previous episode that we're now possibly going to cut out of this one. Although, let's see if we can leave it in. Hey, eh? oh, we're already marking it as explicit. Uh, a health tech news podcast that has to be marked explicit. That's where we are, guys. I like that. I think we could do a pigeon after hours. There could be there could be two of these. <laughs> <laughs> Moving on. Right, story number four. Has biotech bottomed out and is recent recovery sustainable? Nick, what's going on in biotech? I know this is a sector that you guys are very much in, very much involved in, uh, that you've got a very good understanding of. Talk to us about biotech and what's going on. It's up, it's down. Where is it? What's happening? And it is down and it's still down. It's had a little bit of movement back up. I think it's regained about 20, 25, 26% of its position. Um, but I think with these, with, with global markets, never fear. Um, you know, we've global markets and equities over the last 30 years have consistently done this. There's consistent periods of drop and it climbs back up and it takes back where it was. I think the one thing you can guarantee based on history as our, as our guide is that things will get better and things will always improve overall. Uh, so just be patient, uh, and I think for anyone that's on the on the stock exchange, it's all about extend your cash runway as long as you can. Um, but an atypical drop is anywhere from fair market eighteen months, maybe as far as twenty four, uh, based on history. So we're nearing the end, based on that. 
although COVID's made things a little strange, so maybe that does change slightly. But I think we get, we all know with confidence that in 12, 24 months' time, things will be a lot easier for the public markets. And now is a good time to invest in the industry as a whole, um, but also in organisations that are looking to go public in two or three years' time. This is not financial advice, just to be clear. <laughs> we don't we don't know these things of absolute confidence. <laughs> just to be clear, <laughs> we're, whilst he said it's nice to invest in those things, this is not financial advice <laughs> with high confidence. <laughs> yeah, not financial advice, but sorry, I, inter- I interrupted you, Nick, but for, for, with an important <laughs> interjection, but yeah, I interrupted you. The other piece that's really interesting, though, is whether this dip is a byproduct of retail investors getting involved and the market becoming really attractive over, over the COVID period to the general population. The, because if you looked pre-2020 and you asked anyone that wasn't in biotech, and probably a lot of people in biotech, what's RNA? No one could have told you. Whereas now, both with a combination of tech and product like Robinhood, free trade coming out to the public, and life sciences being far more accessible in terms of information and data and being far more prevalent in the news, is this just a byproduct? And was the was the highs of 2021 just a byproduct of retail investors or the general public thinking it's interesting? And um, I do think some of that will maintain. And, I, and that's why I, I feel confident that 2023 is a great year for, for biotech and why the future looks really positive. Um, and that will either come in the form of M&As or it will come in the form that the public markets revive and, and do well across the next 12 months. Yeah, you, me and Steph talk about this a lot, right, when we speak every week, um, Steph being the other Kavanaugh co-founder. And I think the other thing to factor in is that 2021 was mad. Like it was an in, the end of 2020, of 2020 and all of 2021 in terms of investment was mad. And as you say, these things are cyclical. They, they you know, you can't have boom forever. There has to be some bust. And if you look at where biotech was tracking in 2019, we're still on that same gradient. It's just that there's this huge spike towards the end of 2020 and 2021. And actually, this is just a re-rationalization in my, in my opinion. Again, this is not financial advice. You can find that on my financial advice podcast, FinTech Pigeon. Um, but like, this is, you know, this is just a normalization, I think. And as, as Nick says, I think we will start to see this cycle play out um, and f- start finishing off in the next few, well, next couple of quarters. Before we do move on, Nick, what, what is exciting you in biotech at the moment? What are the upcoming IPOs? What are the big upcoming M&A things going on? What You talked about RNA there being one that clearly when you're developing vaccines and things, that's clearly going to be a, a word that gets thrown around. But what else is, what else is interesting? What's happening in biotech from uh, that side of things? So some of the most exciting pieces to come through, I think, over the next 12 months will be the tools and technology that actually started to be developed during the COVID period and realised it's its need. And actually, it goes broader than that. And I think that's full spectrum. I think when you look at the cell and gene therapy market that has had enormous scales of investment and therapeutic technologies that are getting better and better, but are actually now reliant on the next phase of rapid evolution coming from medtech, the tools and technology, the things that scientists are using at their desktop, which is radically going to change the way we move and the momentum that we have behind us, that rate and pace. I think the cap's been taken off how fast we can do it. And now people are going to be far more aggressive with the technologies and tools that they use to get there. And I think that will be the, the big story for the next 12 months will be technologies coming to market that radically change the way we work. 
I love that because that's we've we've actually thought about on this before the biotech versus tech bio argument and actually these technologies that support the biology uh, and support those people doing that biology. So yes, interesting. Love it. Going to move us on to our final story of today. <laughs> you can tell that Henry has uh, written Pigeon when something starts with Space Force. Uh, Space Force is scrapping the annual fitness test in favor of wearable trackers. Interesting. Uh, Henry, what is going on here? Space Force, is that actually a thing? Space Force is the crocs of military branches. Like, it's so lame. <laughs> In your opinion. <laughs> no, no, that's just that's just fact. Um, like, imagine, okay, fine, it's not actually a fact. But imagine you're sat there and you've got the Army, the Navy, the Air Force, fabulous, and you've got to come up with a, a new one for space. And with all of the money behind this and all of the brains in that room, the best thing you can come up with is Space Force. Obviously, it's like that, that episode of The Thick of It where they come up with everyday bat people. Like, it's just a terrible, terrible name for something. And, yeah, anyway, look. Firstly, it's quiet bat people. Secondly, uh, you've just described the plot of uh, the Netflix series called Space Force, which is, uh, it's got Steve Carell in it, and it's there's a couple of seasons of it now. It's just easy watching light entertainment, but quite literally, uh, he is head of Space Force in the US that doesn't really do a lot, but as you've uh, just described. But you th- what's actually going on in the story, man? <laughs> So yeah, so so in the world of Space Force, the crock of, of military branches, they have decided to scrap the annual fitness test that you know you do in lots of branches of the military and you do in lots of lots of large corporations as well, uh, in favor of basically giving everyone fitness trackers, so Apple Watches, so they can keep an eye on them. And 50% of me goes, that's quite cool, actually. Oh, nice. I like that. And 50% of me goes, no, absolutely not. That's a horrible envision of privacy. I really hate the idea that, you know, my employer could know, like, oh. Henry's heart rate's up. Wonder what he's up to. Like, no, don't want that. That's weird. So, yeah, they're doing that. Uh, and they're saying it's to promote physical fitness and sort of long-term looking after yourself rather than just, I don't think anyone does this, but like working out just before their annual fitness uh, test. But, yeah, that's uh, that's the story. Will it replace, could this as a concept replace, um, replace workplace medicals? Interesting. Well, my, my question here is like, I'm interested. You mentioned that you're, you know, 50% of you think it's cool. 50% of you is worried about the privacy element. What is it that you're actually worried about there? Like that interests me. So let's say that for whatever reason, you are not exercising a lot at the moment. That might be that you've got a lot of other stuff on. The idea of someone having the data on how much activity you're doing, like like exercise activity the whole time as well. Like I don't know if they're putting in like this is between nine mm-hmm. and five. But that is truth and your job depends on it. Yeah, absolutely. But if I, for example, I was, I'm not talking about like actually doing work. If I didn't go to the gym for like a month, say, because I had lots of other stuff on, I'd find it really weird if I went to a one-to-one with you and you were like, so... Aside from the visible porkiness, I also know that someone hasn't been jogging. If we ran a space agency, though, I would probably bring that up in a one-to-one. Uh, so, <laughs> and actually keep, keep keep an eye out for the new Somex space agency. <laughs> um, but 
Yeah, we don't. But I think it, my, my wider point is, could this become something that goes into other areas, into other industries? And it becomes like mandatory when you join a company to be like, right, we don't do a physical, but we do do this. And I just, yeah, if it was my, if my job depended on it, uh, if I couldn't write Pigeon without being able to do a sort of sub 23 minute 5K, then fair enough. Absolutely. <laughs> track what I do. But yeah, it makes me uneasy for other industries, but not for astronauts. That's my, those are my feelings. If it, if it means, if you have to be fit and active to do your job, fantastic, then this makes some sense. If, uh, if it became a wider thing, I'd find that uncomfortable. You don't, you don't like the idea of getting a nice new watch and a ring when you start with a company? Uh, you little welcome pack. Not one that every time I look at it, I know that there's some like <laughs> Space Force nerd <laughs> sat behind a computer being like, oh, and Henry's, <laughs> Henry's not lifting as much as he used to, apart from around the waist. Like, no, nah, I'm not into that. <laughs> I'm worried for your paranoia. Yeah, <laughs> this is just a window into Henry's insecurity. Uh, I can pull this back into some sort of health tech discussion, though, if, if needed. Yeah, please do. That'd be great. Um, all right. I agree. I I think that the um the fear of kind of encroaching big brotherness is is genuine and real. My my major pushback personally to owning an Apple Watch or a, I I, mean, I had a Fitbit on for literally like four hours and was like, how dare this thing tell me the quality of my sleep? Like, what does it know? And and me trying to like compete with it. All of a sudden, my behaviour just changed. For the worse, and actually, I just don't like the feeling of being watched and that everything is being collected and and that sits as truth forever somewhere like i I just don't like the idea of that, and you're right, I think where that where you start then talking about insurance and insurance premiums based on x, and I know that's somewhat you know the model of like vitality and all the rest of it, but you're right, Henry, my question would be where does this end, and I think there are probably people much smarter than me that have a much more definitive answer to that in terms of what is coming in terms of policy, law, regulation, all of those different things. But my fear is where does this end? And actually, I I just want to exist in the world with freedom without knowing that everything I'm doing has been recorded and watched because where it does apply, and we joked about where that applies to an employer and having a one-to-one where people say, oh, well, you didn't you said you were going to go and you didn't. And what does that mean about your mental state? And what does that mean about your this? And, that, and you know, this, this, where does that end is the question. Um, but plenty of health tech companies building businesses on this, plenty of health tech, the, you know, the, the quantified self, as we talked about before, the data collection around, and we've done previous episodes on this about women's menstrual cycles and people just documenting and tracking all of that and all that information going somewhere people getting hacked, companies getting hacked, all this information getting out there somewhere, this data isn't necessarily going to be all used for good, is it? And that said, plenty of good can come from it. So I don't know where the line is. Jess, any thoughts? Yeah, I actually think it comes back to a much bigger question and one that I know that there are some companies addressing, but it's about ownership of data. Um, And right now, individuals don't own their own data the companies that record it own that data. And I think there needs to be this shift where all data is owned by the individual and they are then incentivized to share that data, but also have the control to be able to revoke it when it no longer serves them. But not only do they have the control to share it, they're able to share it where they see benefit and where they are getting some kind of recompense from that. And so I think 
if you're able to go into those situations with an employer or whoever that may be, feeling really informed and really comfortable about why you're sharing your data and what data is being shared, the benefit that comes from that and the fact that you can then revoke it at any point with no consequence, then I think it's fine. It's great. And it it could have really positive potential. But I think until there is that change, and I don't want to say the word paradigm, but paradigm shift. Henry, I saw that you had liked a post recently about paradigms. So that one was for you. Um, but until there's that real shift in, t- in who owns that data and actually my data as an individual currently being spread all across the internet in all different places, some of it's wrong, some of it's out of date, and I have control over none of it. Until that comes, all of that comes back to me and I have ownership over it and I have confidence in that ownership I think the impact is going to be limited and it is going to feel like it's one-sided and companies are benefiting not individuals and you're kind of in selling your data or giving access to your data you're selling yourself and so I think that's the change that has to happen for this to to really have a profound and positive impact thanks Jess thank you that has turned that space force nonsense into a good health tech conversation uh thanks henry for putting that one in cool thank you everybody great chat today some nice stories some interesting stories and one about space force thanks nick for coming (laughs) on (laughs) thanks nick for coming on um great insights as always uh if anybody wants to catch the full stories grab any of these links uh you can head over to www.healthtechpigeon.com You can subscribe to the newsletter. You can get all of that into your inbox every single week. Nick, if anybody wants to find out more about Kavanagh Health or indeed yourself, get in touch with you, How? what is the best way for them to do that? LinkedIn is probably my home. Uh, So LinkedIn or KavanaghHealth.com, best places to get us. And thank you for having me on. Fingers crossed to get an invite back, but maybe that will depend on whether Henry gets an invite back to the office. Very much scratch my back, you scratch yours. Uh, that's not right. I scratch my back, you scratch yours does not work. <laughs> and let's end the episode there. Thank you, everybody, for listening. See you next week for more of Henry's interesting, don't know what word to finish on there. Bloopers. We'll call them bloopers. Yeah, we go. Okay, I'll wrap up. Bye, everyone. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye. See you next week.